as we turn together to the book of Acts, the first chapter of Acts. There are many ways to gauge the length of time in the life of a congregation. When the first service was, how long since we've moved into our building, when we had our first missions conference. But for the preacher, everything seems to be measured in terms of sermon series. And so it's been about a year since we have moved into this building. But in the mornings, we have looked together at the books of Philippians and Daniel, and now we are in Acts. We were in Philippians for a reason, to show us what it means to have a congregation that is united and bound together in love. And then the challenges that are faced by a hostile, secular society were illustrated through the book of Daniel. The book of Acts is a book of mission. And so it is God's good and kind providence that we have a great emphasis on missions this week. As we have the Shepians coming this evening and we have the Campbells coming for our missions conference next week. Because the book of Acts is not just church history. It is that. But it is a call and a guideline for us, Christ Church, to take up the mission of the kingdom of God, to be equipped by the Spirit of God, and to see His kingdom grow in our midst. And so we are approaching now the beginning of the explosion of the church. We looked last week at the what must have been an awfully sad event for the disciples as our Lord Jesus Christ ascended to heaven. This week we will look at a bit of the waiting time in between. And so if you would please give attention to the reading of God's Word, our text this morning is Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 26. This is the very Word of God. It is authoritative. It is sufficient. And it is inspired and inerrant. Acts chapter 1. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of the persons was in all about 120 and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man bought a field with the reward of his wickedness. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called, in their own language, Akeldama, that is, 
field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it. And let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two. Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, Show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Let's ask for the Lord's blessing on his word. Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask that you would take this word and that you would cause it to grow deeply, richly, and abundantly in our lives. We ask, O Lord, that you would change us by your word. May your Holy Spirit illumine our hearts and our minds and our wills. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. A waiting period of time isn't exactly very fun, is it? You know something is coming up, and you have to wait for it to happen. And it's almost like if it were physically possible, if you could take the week and squish it and get rid of that middle portion, you would do it, right? It happens as kids look forward to birthdays, vacations, maybe the end of school. It happens to adults as their sports team has to wait till next year. There's nothing you can do. There's no more games to play. All you have to do is get through that period of time. It can happen to churches as well as they wait and go through the ordinary business of life waiting for the next big thing to happen in their congregation. And it was true in the days of the apostles just as it is true today for us. You see, the apostles were in, the disciples, all of them were in a waiting period of time. It was 10 days from the time when our Lord Jesus Christ ascended until Pentecost. We know that for a fact, for Luke tells us it was 40 days after Passover that Jesus ascended, and Pentecost is a feast 50 days after Passover. So we know that the apostles were told to go back to Jerusalem and they had to wait for 10 days. Imagine what that would be like. Jesus tells you he's going to send the Holy Spirit upon you. You have to wait in Jerusalem and then you will go out and see the kingdom expand, not just in Jerusalem, not just in Judea and Samaria, but to the ends of the earth. That's exciting. It's not so exciting 36 hours later when you're waiting for it to happen. And you think, well, I'll go to sleep. Time goes faster when I go to sleep, and I'll wake up in the morning and it'll be here. You wake up and it's not there also. You see, waiting is a difficult thing. They must have been wanting God to act. 
to bring down the promise of the Spirit. They must have been wanting to act themselves, saying, what can we do? Surely we're just wasting time sitting here, talking, having some food, sleeping. Isn't there something we could be doing for the kingdom? And perhaps the most difficult thing about this waiting time is they are unable at this point to see the work of God in them during this waiting time. Do you ever feel like that? As you wait to get through the rush of children growing up and off to college, as you wait for them to get through school and to get married and to have grandchildren, as you wait to retire. You see, oftentimes we are waiting and looking and looking and not paying attention to what God is doing in our midst. That's what he's doing here with the apostles. And so what I would like us to see are three things that God is doing to and with them, binding them. First, binding them to each other. In this period of time, they are bound to each other. And then secondly, we will see they're not just bound to each other, but they are bound to the Lord. Bound to each other and bound to the Lord with the result that they might be bound to the mission that God has given to them. Well, let's begin then by taking a look at how they are bound to each other. It begins in verse 12. It's it's kind of pedestrian, but it's actually quite significant. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. You see, the first thing that they did to be bound to each other is they stayed together. Now, this seems like not much of significance because we expect to see a lot of things happening in the book of Acts. But you have to remember, they have gone from emotional highs to emotional lows. They have had difficulties. They've had challenges. We can assume if they're like any other church, they've had arguments. I think I know where Jesus will come back. No, you don't. I do. I think I know what the Holy Spirit will look like when he comes upon us. No, you don't. I do. I think the most significant thing we should look to is the book of Isaiah. No, no, it's Jeremiah. And you can imagine. And then they go to the emotional high of being with our Lord to the emotional low of him leaving and saying, wait. And they stay together. Any of you that have had any difficulty in a church or in a family know how difficult that is. When you're on the outside, you look and you say, well, of course, they should just stay together. That's easy. It makes all the sense. But when the turmoil is there, when the stomach is turning, when you don't know what will be around the corner, just staying together is a major accomplishment. If that's where you are right now, be encouraged. The Lord is keeping you together through trials. Be encouraged. And there are a good number of them. 120, Luke tells us. A large number of these waiters, these people in waiting. Well, who are they? You see, 120 people means one thing, but if I say to you amongst this group were perhaps Nicodemus, the disciple who just couldn't understand what it meant to be born again and then came by night. What about Joseph of Arimathea carrying a cross no longer? What about those disciples who were on the road to Emmaus? You see, they had given up. They were going back home. 
Now they are back in Jerusalem. Perhaps Mary and Martha are here together. Not so much squabbling over who will do the dishes, but rather waiting, expecting their Lord to return. You see, all of these people are real, with real emotions, real families, and with a real desire to be bound to each other. And I want you to notice something else. We'll notice it as we go through the book of Acts. Luke is very fond of highlighting the fact that this is a universal church. He makes a point here to say that women are in the midst of this church. He'll make a point later to talk about how the poor are in the midst of this church. You see, Luke wants us to know that this is a real church with real people. And you can't have real community without women, can you? I don't think so. John just returned from a conference that we go to often at this time of the year. And one of the best things about this conference is the singing of the men, gathering together and singing. But you know, this conference with 100 or 200 men doesn't really run unless there's at least two or three women there helping. And I don't mean just getting things. I mean encouraging men, asking them how they're doing, pointing out where things are when guys forget the third or fourth time. You see, Luke says this is a real church and it's bound with men, women, and children. Don't think of the Acts as a theology academy on paper. Don't think of the Acts of the Apostles as just simply history off in an ivory tower. There's someone else that we see here, and it's very significant. We see Mary, the mother of our Lord. This is the last time we see Mary mentioned in the New Testament. And it is a great blessing to biblical Christianity that the last occurrence of Mary in the New Testament, she is seen worshiping the Lord. The emphasis is not on her. She is not the queen of the apostles. She is not the queen of the church. She is not the co-mediator, as so many would have her to be. She is a simple, believing Christian worshiping her Lord. And that, friends, is worth more than all the riches in the universe. Mary is here amongst the disciples. And it's not just the people that remained, the leadership remained. Notice that it's the exact same list of disciples, less one, who are called apostles. The order is a little bit different than as we see sometimes in Mark or in Luke, but they're all there. This also is important. How many of you have known a church where there has been difficulty, and the first people to leave are the leadership, or part of the leadership. You see, the leadership here of this ragtag group of disciples waiting for the promise of the Holy Spirit, they remained. They didn't know what to do. They'd gotten all the on-the-job training they were going to get, but they knew they had to stay with the people. They had to be with them. They weren't off busy doing something else. They were with the people of God in Jerusalem. And this is especially significant when we see the one who will speak here in Acts chapter 1. It's Peter. Now, you can imagine that Peter lost just a little bit of his shine. Peter lost just a little bit of his credibility when he denied the Lord in such forceful terms on the evening before his crucifixion. But you see, Jesus came and restored Peter. 
in the sight of all the other apostles. And now Peter, rather than sulking, rather than being worried, rather than beating himself up, he follows the word of his Lord and he leads. And the irony is, this may even be the same room that the Last Supper was held in. Or it perhaps could be another upper room in which Jesus appeared after his resurrection. So there would be all kinds of reminders of Peter's failure. But he perseveres. And they're also staying together with one accord. This little language, this little phrase, with one accord. It's a favorite of Luke's. Eleven of the twelve times it's used in the Bible. It's used by Luke. And it describes not just a being together like we are sitting here. It describes a close unity of purpose and passion. You could even say, instead of with one accord, you could say with one passion and drive. Because that's what the word means. They are gathered together and they are bound together in fundamental unity. Now, this shouldn't surprise us because there is a human need for community, isn't there? If we think about it, what is, from the position of those who run a prison, what is the worst prison sentence you can be given? What's the worst punishment you can get? It's being put in solitary, isn't it? Sometimes I think I'd rather be in solitary because then I would be safe from the guards and from the prisoners. But that's the worst punishment. That's how badly we need human contact and community. You put someone in solitary to punish them. It also happens in the way we think about parenting. You know, science has taken a long time to do research to tell us something we already knew. And that is the worst thing you can do to a child is ignore them. Apathy is far worse than hatred. Children who are ignored and whose parents are apathetic have far more difficulties than even those who are cursed at and hated. Not that that doesn't have its own set of problems, but the worst thing you can do to someone is cut them off from human contact, is to ignore them. And so this is something that is innate in us. We must be together, but it's also something that is innate to the church. You see, there is not only a human need for community, there is a Christian need for community. That's why we call it the body of Christ. We are called to be not individual Christians, but to be God's people. It's one of the reasons why when someone asks me about college, which is oftentimes the first time someone will move to a new place. But the same advice goes for when someone is seeking a new job. They'll say, well, should I take this job or that job? Or I don't know which college I should go to. My first question to them is, in which place is there the best and strongest church? Where you're moving, do you know there is a church where you can be in community with other Christians, where you can worship the Lord? You see, the greatest difficulty that Christians have in college is not atheistic professors. It is not evolution taught in the schools. It is a falling away from the accountability of the people of God. It is a lack of using one's gifts because there is no arena to use them in. 
And that's why it's so critical to have not only a church, but to have other Christians around you, whether it be on campus, in a campus group, or whether it be a small group at work that you can confide in. You see, Christians need community. You, dear Christian, need church. Your pastor is telling you, you need church more than church needs you. Because God has designed you to be in community. You must be together. And that's what the apostles and the disciples were learning. God gave them these ten days with nothing else to do that they would learn the focus and the priority of being together. Because it is only by being together that they can do all that God asks them. They are bound to each other. Well, they are not only bound to each other, but they are also bound to the Lord. And this we also see in verse 12. Again, it's pedestrian, but let me make my point. They returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet. Sounds like standard ordinary prose, right? Any mom or dad will tell you the significance of verse 12. The significance is Jesus told them to do something and they didn't delay and they didn't complain and they didn't whine and they didn't try and find a loophole. Kids are masterful at that. And bigger kids as we grow up get even better at it. We just do it in a different arena, at work, in our neighborhoods. But you see, they were bound to the Lord in obedience. Jesus gave them a command and they did it. Against everything that they might see, they did it. And they walked a Sabbath day journey back to Jerusalem. That's probably something like 2,000 cubits. We know how long a Sabbath day journey is because the Bible tells us how big a piece of property is. And on the Sabbath, you weren't supposed to leave your property. So it was not a long journey. They could have certainly gone further. They could have certainly wandered along the way. But instead, they obeyed Christ's command. And there was no discussion or no options recorded here by Luke. That is remarkable. For many of us, as we think about this, that's almost miraculous. Someone just obeying a command, a group just obeying a command. This obedience was not easy either. Because as we talked about before, waiting is hard, isn't it? You could just imagine they might think that this waiting, going back to Jerusalem and waiting, would be pointless. Why do we need to wait in Jerusalem? Why can't we wait in our own houses? Why can't we just come when we hear the Holy Spirit's come? Why can't we take a vacation now so we're busy after the Holy Spirit comes? What's the use of just sitting around in a room? There's work to be done. You see, it might have seemed like a loss of time. Peter, ten whole days? Do you have any idea what we could do in ten days? That's probably two Sabbaths. We could go to the synagogues. We could see if we could recruit more uh, Christians. We could spread the news of Jesus' resurrection. We could do all sorts of things. Why do we need to just wait 10 days? Waiting is hard. There's also the fact that they had other options and opportunities available to them. It shows their obedience to the Lord. You see, we look at a book 
like Acts, we read the beginning of chapter 1, we know chapter 2 is coming, and we say, well, you know, they've got to be there. The the Holy Spirit's coming in chapter 2. They've got to wait it out. And we view the book of Acts kind of like we would view a television series or a book with chapters. And we say, well, you know, it's not really important to us what happens between week to week or between chapter and chapter. We're only interested in the interesting stuff. They just have to have filler. But really, this is an account of what the church is doing. And they could have scattered again. They could have gone out to many other places. They could have gone back to their old jobs. Peter had a net and some boats waiting for him. He could have gone off fishing. Matthew could have gone to make some money raising taxes again. They could have all gone back to their old lives and just waited around in that fashion, but they didn't. They also could have followed the way of the world. They could have said, well, Jesus is gone, but he is resurrected. We have power. Let's start a revolution. One in their midst was perfect for it. He's named Simon the Zealot for a reason. The Zealots were a crack party of anti-Roman terrorists. They went around destroying things, killing people, plotting revolution. I'm sure Simon had connections. They could have overthrown this wicked Sanhedrin. They could have done all kinds of things, tried to right wrongs, but they didn't because they were bound to the command of their Lord. They were also bound to their Lord, not just in obedience, but in prayer. Look at what they do when they go into this upper room. They are there with one accord, devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. This is an obvious thing, but we must repeat it to ourselves. Prayer builds and brings unity. You must have unity when you are praying for someone else's illness or difficulty or challenge. You must ask them about how they are doing and how things are going because you want to be praying for them. And they're encouraged to know that others are praying. Prayer is not just about speaking to the Lord. It's about a way of building and bringing unity to God's people. And this is what they are doing. Prayer is absolutely fundamental to the church. If Acts is the book of the mission of the church, then you must know that prayer is mentioned 31 times in Acts. In 20 of the 28 chapters, it is described that the Christians went to prayer. Prayer is described more than preaching. The work of the church goes forward by prayer because prayer binds us not only to each other, but to God. Now, how would they pray? Well, what book are we in? We're in Acts. And you may know the famous acrostic, Acts, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. And that certainly would apply to their prayer life. They would worship the Lord Jesus Christ, they had seen him ascend into heaven. They would know that he was God, that the the bounds of death could not hold him. 
They would worship him as a risen Savior. They would also know that they would have sins to confess. They would have shortcomings. It probably wasn't just Peter that doubted the resurrection. It probably wasn't just Thomas that doubted that Jesus was rose from the dead. You see, they would have something to confess. To confess sins against one another. They would worship Jesus. They would confess their sins to the Lord. And then they would also have great thanksgiving to give. Thanksgiving, first and foremost, for Christ's teaching that he had given to them. Jesus spent 40 days with them, teaching them. Teaching them about the kingdom of God. Teaching them about their purpose. Teaching them about himself. It's sort of the extended road to Emmaus course. How thankful would you be if you had the Lord Jesus Christ teaching you from his word, making you a better person, making you sounder in the faith, bringing you closer to God, making you more aware of the gems in God's word. You'd pray prayers of thanksgiving all day long. They'd also have an obvious need for supplication. Why? Jesus had just said to them, wait and the Spirit will come. Wait and the promise will come. And so what could they do but pray for the promise? Pray that this promise of the Spirit would come and would come quickly and would come powerfully and would change their lives forever, both as individuals and as a community. This kind of prayer was part and parcel of the people of God. This kind of prayer is also preparation for what will come. You see, they didn't just pray. You'll notice that our translation here says that they devoted themselves to prayer. That phrase is all one verb. You could also translate it, they persevered in praying. Same concept. This was not the kind of prayers that we pray when we're out at a restaurant before our meal, when we know we need to pray, but it's hard to be heard, and we don't want to be interrupted by the waiter, so we fire off that classic 15 to 30 second prayer just to give thanks for the food. It's a very limited prayer. That's not what they're doing. This is not a prayer meeting where everyone is looking at their watch and saying, you know, prayer meetings normally 30 minutes, and it's 34 right now. Are we almost done? I'm ready to have a cup of coffee. This is the kind of prayer that encompasses them, envelops them. It's the kind of prayer that's spontaneous at all points of the day. Can we pray together? Can I pray for you? This is how they are bound to God. And finally, we cannot be bound to God without also looking to his word. Peter stands up in verse 16 and he says, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. Peter brings the word of God to this community. Now, I want you to notice how he brings the word of God. The first thing is, he recognizes that this Bible is God speaking, not man speaking. 
This is actually one of the best proof texts in all of the Bible to say that the Bible is inspired. It is the very word of God, even though written by men. Because Peter says, the Holy Spirit spoke by the mouth of David. He doesn't say David wrote. He doesn't say David's redactor edited. He says, the Holy Spirit spoke by the mouth of David. He acknowledges the inspiration of the Bible. But he goes beyond just bare inspiration. He also acknowledges the authority of the Bible over his life and their lives. He says, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled. And then later on he will say that one man must be placed in Judas's place. Same word. It is necessary. We must And we must because God has said so. Do you ever wonder whether there are certain parts of the Bible that are optional? That, you know, it would be just so much easier if I didn't have to love my wife like Christ loved the church. Can't I just... Isn't there a Chinese menu where I can go to column B? I won't steal double, maybe. I'll do something else. You know... Can I cut out a little bit of this about honor and obey my parents? You know, I guess I could honor them, but do I really have to obey them all the time? You know, is Jesus really God? Can't he just be a good teacher? You see, the Bible is the very word of God. And as the word of God, it is authoritative for all of our life. Everywhere the Bible speaks, it is authoritative, not optional. The early church understood that. They didn't compromise their mission. They didn't compromise the Bible. They realized that the Bible was the best way of accomplishing the mission. You see, sometimes as the church, we think that the means are fungible. We can change the means as long as the end is in play. That describes 21st century American Christianity. It doesn't matter so long as we bring people to Jesus. We can violate everything in the Bible we want, as long as our ends are clear. No, the ends are clear. We must bring people to Jesus, and we must do it the way the Bible says so. That is how we are bound to God. And it also tells us a bit about what Peter and the others were doing in the early life of the church in this waiting game. They were studying their Bibles. Do you think Peter off the top of his head, quotes two psalms? No. I understand we think that everyone in Bible days read their Bibles 23 hours a day and had everything memorized. And that's why they can do these things and we can't. That's not the case. Peter was a semi-literate fisherman. He was not a genius. He was not the guy who the speed reads like this. Yet he knew exactly which scriptures to apply. How is that? Well, Peter was studying the scriptures during these ten days. And what would he study? He would study things about the events that had just happened. The death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And how he was betrayed. And it shouldn't also surprise us that he finds his texts in the Psalms. We sing in worship, not 
just because we have to. We sing in worship because God ties the emotion and the beauty of music to knowledge. You see, the Psalms were the hymn book of the church. How many times have you been talking with someone and you want to make a point and a hymn comes to mind? A line from a mighty fortress. A line from how great thou art. A line from when peace like a river. See, Peter was used to worshiping all the time and he worshiped using that hymn book and he studied the scriptures and that hymn book in order to apply the word of God. He's doing exactly what Jesus did on the road to Emmaus. You can almost imagine as he's teaching and looking through and doing his Bible studies, those disciples who went on the road to Emmaus saying, hey, Jesus did this. He pointed this out in Isaiah and he pointed this out in Genesis. You mean we can do that too? Yes. You know, it's not only your pastor that can read through the book of Acts. You can as well. You can even do it for upcoming next week's sermon. You don't need to wait for me to tell you. You see, we are bound to God by obeying Him, by praying to Him, and by reading and using His Word. Thirdly and finally, we will see that an outgrowth of being bound to each other and an outgrowth of being bound to God is that they are also bound to the mission itself. And so what they do is they choose a successor to Judas. Have you ever wondered why they do this? I mean, it seems kind of odd, right? We've never heard of either of these two guys. We've never heard of Matthias. We've never heard of uh, Joseph called Barsabbas. Why do they need a 12th guy to replace Judas? I think it's because they have a desire to get everything in order that they can before God brings the promise of the Spirit. They know there are supposed to be 12 apostles, not just because Jesus chose 12, but because there are 12 tribes of Israel, and Jesus told them there would be 12 thrones in heaven. And so they want to get everything Everything resolved that they can before Jesus sends the Spirit. And so the first place they start is with leadership. They want the leadership to be unified, to be in place. There are 120 of them, which just happens to be the number of people in a community in which you need to have leadership chosen. A Sanhedrin using the word of the day. And so Peter stands up and he addresses the men. He probably addresses just the apostles. He uses a very interesting phrase. He says, men, brothers, we have a problem here. We must be ready. What can we do? And he says that there is a need. And in verses 18 and 19, you will see our translation here rightly puts parentheses around these verses. Peter is not speaking in verses 18 and 19. He doesn't need to remind the apostles of what has happened. Luke is reminding us. This is good Dr. Luke, the historian, telling us exactly what has happened. Because you see, what's important here is not just that Judas is dead, but that Judas has also apostatized, that he has betrayed his Lord. 
because later in Acts 12, James will die and they will not replace him. It's not just a death. It's a death plus an apostasy. Judas has gone to use a euphemism to his own place. It's kind of a chilling way to describe it. He's not going to the place where the apostles are going. He went to his own place. Brief aside, some look at this text and think that the Bible is wrong because we all know from Matthew that Judas hanged himself. And here, Luke tells us that his body burst asunder and his his guts came out. No, there's no inconsistency there. You can hang yourself. One of the effects it can have on your body as your entire blood flow stops and as gravity takes over is that part of your body could break open or explode. It's exactly what happens here. It's a gruesome, grisly death. It's a reminder to us of what awaits for betraying the Lord. And so what Peter then does is he sets about choosing a replacement. And the first thing they do is lay down the requirements. It must be someone who has been with them through Jesus' entire ministry. It must be someone who has seen the resurrected Christ. And then they take nominations from the floor, as it were. And there are only two men who fit the qualifications. And then what they do is pray. Now, some might look at this and say they've got all their priorities mixed up. You know, Pastor, you just told us about the importance of prayer. Why didn't they pray before they took nominations? And the point is, this is a very specific set of requirements. Very, very few men meet these requirements. They need to know that it is according to Christ's choice not their will or their prayers. Because actually the one who is going to be doing the choosing is Jesus Christ. And this is something that makes us a little bit uncomfortable, right? We expect, in good Presbyterian fashion, a long nominating speech for the new 12th apostle. And then we expect to vote and to have a close vote and to have to stand And then they have to have counts. But we don't see any of this. What they do is they choose by lot. They take probably stones and put them in a plate, a bowl, or a bag, and they take one out. And we think, this is a crazy way to to pick an apostle. This lot is not luck to them. This lot is God at work. Look with me, if you would, at verse 24. And they prayed and said... You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen. Now, go back with me to verse 2. Jesus Christ, until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. You see, Jesus chose this 12th apostle just as surely as he chose the others. They trusted the Lord. They trusted the Lord with the mission. Do you have that kind of trust to the Lord for the mission of Christ church? For the church in America? Can God take care of the church in America? Yes, he can. 
We must trust the Lord even as the apostles did. We must trust that He knows what He is doing, that He is prepared. They understood this. Because you see, they understood that the ministry must go on, even after setbacks. That's the whole purpose of this event. They can't say, well, you know, I guess we need to give up. Judas turned out to be a bad apple. If Jesus can't pick a good apostle, who can? What can we do? No, they understood the purpose of God, and they went forward with the mission. That's why there is a must in verse 22. Peter said, we must do this. Do you have that kind of view about the mission of God? Is the mission of the church just something that's convenient? Or is it a must? Is the need to tell others of the Lord Jesus Christ just something that would be good? Or is it a must? That's what a biblical church looks like. It's bound together in love. It is bound to her Lord. And it is bound to His mission and His kingdom. May the Lord give us such perseverance and grace that we would go forward in the same mission, in the same work. Let us pray.